You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined by my co-host, John McEwen, and it's the 7th of February, 2023. And on this week's episode, we'll be covering Airtel Africa, Entain, Doc Martens, Shell, BT, and our US company of the week is Apple. However, before I dive into favourite of the show, Airtel Africa, we did discuss associated British foods last week on the show. And one of the things we talked about was the Primark stores in the US and how we would be interested to know how that's going. We have had a listener tweet in a thread, which I'm basically just going to read out the highlights of, but it's by Andy, who goes by the handle Flying Finance on Twitter. The recent InvestorWay podcast touched on whether ABF was continuing or slowing their rollout of Primark stores in the USA. I hold the stock, so I thought I'd do some digging. Total stores opened year by year. 2015 2, 2016 3, 2017 3, 2018 0, 19 0, 2022, 2021 2, 2022 3, and 2023 9. They also paused the rollout for a couple of years pre COVID but they've really upped their efforts to expand since. Their target is for 60 US stores by 2026. They have 15 open and another nine likely to open in 2023. That would mean opening 10 to 15 stores per annum for the next three years, which seems very achievable if they hit nine this year. Their first nine stores were all geographically similar in style. All these stores were either in MA, PA, CT, NY or NJ. These states all adjoin. In 2020, they went off-piste with a store in Florida and then in 2021 opened one in Chicago. They're due to open a second Illinois store this year, along with North Carolina and one or two stores in Maryland. I think this shows Primark are being braver with its expansion and testing new markets and demographics. There is a huge runway for Primark to expand if successful. Of the 10 largest cities in the US, only two have a Primark. There are more Primarks in the center of York than the center of New York. (laughs) Although it is perhaps noteworthy that they have no stores on the West Coast, Primark has suppliers in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan and China. So logistics to the West Coast should theoretically be faster and cheaper. Interestingly, they are advertising for a real estate manager to join the team in Boston. There are 35,000 Google reviews of the open stores and the average rating is 4.5 with two stores open this year hitting 4.7. Primark Oxford Street is rated just 4.3 for comparison. To summarise, there's a huge runway for Primark to expand in the US as they seem to be taking the opportunity. Customers like the product a lot, and at a forecast P of 15 and a 2.4% dividend, I'm happy to hold. He's happy to share his spreadsheet, which includes the location, sizes, dates, opened reviews, if anyone wants to drop him a DM on Twitter. So it's at Flying Finance. And also, if he would like to come on the show for an interview, do feel free to get in touch because that was very, very interesting. And I'm sure we will be stealing some of his content for quite a few months to come whenever we cover (laughs) ABS. Thank you for tweeting in. Shall we now move on to favourite of the show, Airtel Africa, who have come out with their Q3 results. And for anyone who doesn't know, Airtel Africa is the African mobile provider in 14 African countries, and it's the second largest mobile provider in Africa overall. They have come out with Q3 results and total customer base increased to 138.5 million, up 10.1%, as the penetration of mobile data and mobile money services continued to rise, driving the data customer base up 13.6% and mobile money customer base up 22.2%. 
Average revenue per user growth was 7.2% in constant currency, and this was largely driven by increased usage across voice, data, and mobile money. Mobile money transaction value increased by 37% to an annualized value of almost $100 billion in Q3. Revenue and reported currency grew by 12.1% to $3.914 billion, and all these figures are in dollars, with Q3 growth of 10.7%. Revenue growth in constant currency was 17.3%, driven by double-digit growth across all reporting segments. Mobile services revenue in Nigeria grew by 20.9%, in East Africa by 11.9%, and Francophone Africa in 11.8%, and across the group by 15.9%, with voice revenue growth of 12.7%, and data revenue up 22.3%. Mobile money revenue grew by 29.8%, driven by 32.5% growth in East Africa and 21.7% in Francophone Africa. EBITDA was $1.9 billion, up 12.6% in recorded currency and 17.4% in constant currency, with an EBITDA margin of 49%, increasing 20 basis points in reported currency. Profit after tax was $523 million, up 1.7%, as EBITDA growth was partially offset by higher foreign exchange and derivative losses of $184 million. EPS before exceptional items was 10.8 cents, a reduction of 5.8%, largely driven by higher foreign exchange and derivative losses. Basic EPS increased to 12.5 cents, up by 6.3%, as a result of the deferred tax asset recognition in Kenya. EPS before exceptional items and excluding foreign exchange and derivative losses increased by 21.6%. CapEx increased 5.8% to $457 million, in line with guidance. As they continue to invest for future growth. Additionally, they acquired Spectrum in Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, and Zambia and Kenya over the nine-month period. In July 2022, the group prepaid 450 million of outstanding external debt. The remaining external debt is now 550 million, falling due in May 2024. The leverage ratio of 1.4x was slightly higher than the September 2022 level of 1.3x. And that's largely driven by the acquisition of Spectrum in Nigeria. Interestingly, in the figures themselves, the net finance costs have increased by 78% from 291 to 519 million. The, the only positive of that is that it's not as bad as it would be in the UK because taxes are a lot higher and they are tax deductible. So it's getting more like 40% tax relief on it. The net debt is up to 3.6 billion from 3 billion a year ago. But as mentioned, that's only 1.4x operating profits. Also, most of that net debt is to the parent company. It's not external debt. Return on capital employed has increased from 21 to 23.3%. And the mobile money customer base is now at 31.4 million. Airtel Africa has actually had a bit of a rough few months. Yeah, so over the last year, the stock's down 24%. And in the last six months, it's down 23.5%. And on these results... It was down quite a bit on the day when the results came out too. I expected the results to be worse than they were. There's not really anything in here that concerns me. I think all the figures are heading in the direction I want them to head in. A lot of the figures are in line with previous figures. I wasn't There wasn't anything overly surprising. My, my only criticism would be, as a shareholder, I would prefer them to stop paying the dividend, which is currently yielding 3.28%, and I'd rather they just paid off the debt. I appreciate some of most of it's internal. But I, I, I do prefer paying debt before dividends. That's my only real 
criticism here. But otherwise, I'm very happy with these results. In terms of valuation, due to the declining share price, the business now trades at a PE of nine. So, John, what are your thoughts on the valuation and these results? Yeah, I mean, certainly for a PE of nine and the growth that it's been delivering, and you did cover it, but particularly in that mobile money sector, I mean, that's massive. And it's got so much growth ahead of it, particularly in Africa, where you have lots of people without bank accounts. And this seems to be the way that to make banking accessible to them. I think it's fantastic. The, you mentioned the expense of debt and them still paying out dividends. I would agree with you on that. And the company's certainly not perfect. But I think certainly from a UK investor's point of view, there's so much going for this company. It's probably one of the most exciting listed on the FTSE 100, I would say. I would agree with that. The only other thing I think that's maybe worth pointing out is, I did talk about it, but the earnings per share has decreased, which I think is partly what what resulted in the drop. But that that is mainly due to foreign exchange and derivative losses, which they can't really do much about apart from the derivatives. But the derivatives, part of that's in place to hedge. And sometimes with hedging, it's going to work against you, but you're paying for the certainty. So it's not I've got no issue with that. I think it maybe highlights, and it's something we have talked about before, but one of, there are a lot of risks with this company. And one of them is that it's, it operates in countries that have pretty weak currencies. They could be growing revenue 20% a year like clockwork. And because they're having to convert it, you might only see 10% of that reflected in the earnings because they lose 10 But that's, that is that is part of the risk. But so far, they've been able to grow revenue enough to offset any currency problems. <laughs> Shall we move on to Entain? Yeah, so we've covered Entain a few times on the show now. It's the gambling company behind brands such as Coral and Ladbrokes, along with a 50% stake in BetMGM in the US. They have their fourth quarter results out from the 1st of October to the 31st of December last week with a 15% rise in net gaming revenue, ignoring the effective exchange rates and including the BetMGM joint venture. This represented a 66% rise in retail and a 1% decline in online. Was benefited by the World Cup and the relaxation post-COVID when compared with the previous year. The number of active customers rose to record levels in the fourth quarter, which came in at 14% higher. Bet MGM, the joint venture with MGM in the States, reported net gaming revenue of $1.44 billion and is on track to generate a cash profit in the second half of this year. It grew revenue by 71% year on year and saw 51% in online net gaming revenue growth on a same state basis. An iGaming's market leadership position was maintained with a 30% market share. The group recently launched in Maryland, Ohio and Massachusetts. Full year cash profits for the group is now ahead of previous guidance and expected to be in the region of between £985 million and £995 million, representing growth of around 12%. Net debt stood at £2.2 billion, which is around 2.3 times EBITDA. Mrs. Nygaard Anderson, Entain CEO, commented that 2022 has been another year of strong financial, operational, strategic progress for Entain. 
We have continued to grow our revenues in a sustainable and diversified way by expanding our global footprint, broadening our customer appeal, entering new areas of entertainment and providing a safe environment for our customers. All of this has led to a record number of active customers in Q4, as well as a full year EBITDA performance ahead of our previous expectations. We've started 2023 with good momentum across the business and remain confident in our ability to continue delivering on our growth and sustainability strategy in the year ahead. In terms of valuation, Entain has a market cap of £9.1 billion and trades at 20 times forward earnings compared with the 10-year average of 13 that currently yields just under 1.5%. I thought these results were really impressive particularly that despite the massive rise and recovery in retail, which is now ahead of pre-pandemic levels, it hasn't been at the detriment of the online division, with the revenues only falling very slightly there. And then the most exciting part of the business is definitely the Bet8 MGM, which we have talked about before. And I think that is what differentiates Entain from the other British bookmakers. And it's probably also accounting for that premium that it trades at. It's got a very decent market share and it's expecting to turn profit in the second half. And if you look at the US sports betting market, which is worth around $37 billion, it's got a very decent stake at that. And the the rate at which it's growing is impressive. And I suppose that is that's that's where this valuation comes from. I wouldn't buy the stock for ethical reasons, but if you were to compare it with the other bookmakers, it's I think it's by far and away the best on the FTSE or the FTSE All Share. What are your thoughts, Sam? Do you have the figure for their market share in the US? I think it's thirty percent. Thirty percent of a market that they think will be worth thirty-seven billion dollars. Yeah, I know it's a joint venture as well, but their market cap's only nine billion. Plus, you're getting all the you know the UK and European stuff thrown in. Yeah, if you I didn't believe really those... come onto that, but uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, they've got a big division in it's certainly in online and uh, retail in Europe too. Yeah, and they've been acquiring as well in Portugal and the Baltics. But the the point is, is that US market share could be worth so much just on its own, and then you've got all this other stuff. You don't really need to start doing the maths for very long before you. If you, I think if you believe that 37 billion figure, and I, I probably would be inclined to because I'm, we've seen how big the market is here. So I, I'd probably believe the 37 billion. And then when you actually start working backwards from there, I, I think it looks pretty cheap. For me, again, like you, it would be, would be ethical reasons that would stop me going any further. But I, I think a, a, similar to you of, of the British bookmakers, probably, well, they, in fact, it is, it's the most interesting one for me. And probably similar to Airtel Africa, but for different reasons. Probably one of is it this will be FTSE one hundred listed, won't it? It is, it's, yeah. It's nine billion, yeah, market cap. So yeah, probably another one of the more more interesting companies on the FTSE one hundred. <laughs> and it, it's one of the few companies or few British companies that's that is actually sort of breaking America in that sense, successfully. Yeah. Um, which it's not doing which, it's not doing retail anyway there's not yeah well well it's actually doing well yeah um i mean it depends which ones we're talking about first one to do it that's not doing it through cheap clothes <laughs> yes but whether it's uh yeah the industries that we would ideally be um selling over there anyway fine doc martens 
Doc Martin, this is another one that we have covered a few times before on the show. They do the funky boots that the hipsters like to wear, for anyone who's not familiar. They have come out with their Q3 trading statement, and they have said, demand for Doc Martens remained resilient through challenging conditions during our peak trading period of Q3. However, due to a combination of significant operational issues creating a bottleneck in our new LA distribution center and weaker than anticipated US direct consumer trading, in part due to unseasonably warm weather, we now expect full-year revenue growth of 11 to 13% on an actual currency basis and full-year EBITDA to be between 250 and 260 million. And just for reference, this is on a market cap of 1.59 billion. Q3 total revenue grew 9%, and that's 3% in constant currency, driven by robust direct consumer trading, which grew 11%, 6% constant currency. Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and Asia, Pacific, and China were in line of expectations. However, America growth was slower than expected. Q3 performance... Oh, we've got got another one trying to crack America here, actually. (laughs) It's retail as well. Q3 performance was led by very strong retail growth of 21%, 16% in constant currency, resulting in direct consumer revenue mix of 65%, one percentage point over last year. In Europe, Middle East, and Africa, retail growth in December was 50%. That's 48% constant currency. Year to date, total revenue grew 12%, 5% constant currency, also driven by direct consumer and in particular retail, which grew 29% or 23% constant currency, leading to direct consumer mix of 53%, up two percentage points over last year. Very recently, we identified significant operating operational issues at our new LA distribution center. We estimate that the impact of lost wholesale revenue and incurred costs as a result of these issues will together reduce financial year 2023 EBITDA by 16 to 25 million, depending on the pace at which we resolve the issues and normalize operations at the distribution center. A bottleneck in the distribution center was created by a combination of people and process issues. Inventory was transferred from our Portland distribution center to our 3PL DC in LA faster than was planned originally. We accepted requests from some U.S. wholesalers to store direct shipments at our distribution center. Inbound shipping times from our factories to our L.A. distribution center improved significantly, resulting in inventory arriving more quickly than anticipated. The bottleneck is significantly impacting throughput, limiting our capacity to meet wholesale demand and our Q4 shipment forecasts. Plan to resolve the issues are we have opened three temporary warehouses close to the distribution center. We will start a third shift at the distribution center by the end of January. We will accelerate an existing plan to reconfigure our East Coast center so it can ship wholesale orders. Most experienced members of the Europe, Middle East and Africa and global supply chain teams are now in LA to ensure these plans are implemented successfully. During the quarter, we opened nine net new stores and we're on track to open 30 net new stores in the year, along with the transfer of 14 franchise stores in Japan. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a PE of 9.15, it currently yields 3.47% and the market cap is 1.59 billion. In terms of the financials, you can't really go back that far because it only listed a few years ago. However, revenue has grown from 672 million to 773 in 2021 to 908 and then for the three quarters that have just gone it's already at 754 
They've said four-year growth of 11 to 13 percent, but it, it looks so. It looks like they're probably on track for a billion in revenue. I think last time we covered this, we've been quite critical of it. There's not enough in this trading statement. Uh, I don't think I'm quite interested enough to go digging myself, but I would be interested to have a look at the geographical spread of their revenue and how much is coming from overseas. And one thing that I think is potentially very interesting is I think I've discounted this before in the past because I wasn't sure where the growth comes from, but actually having covered Nike and Adidas and their direct-to-consumer fairly recently, I think Doc Martens is a good enough brand that it could do something similar. So I'd be interested to cover this a few more times and get to know the business a little better, but I, I think there's a better business here than than I might have originally thought there was when we previously covered it. John, what are your thoughts on these results and Doc Martens as a company? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, for me, it's probably that familiar not having the familiarity not maybe buying into that brand as much that would probably be holding me back from going further although i do appreciate what you say and that i could be completely wrong on the brand and it's not one that i suppose i buy or that i'm familiar with in my everyday life so i think that's probably influences me with it but they have grown revenue and it will be a very interesting one to follow i think well, I've never owned a pair of Doc Martins. I probably never will. <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't see you in a pair either, John. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but the the people that do, and, and it is certain, yeah. certain types of people. It is it is the hipsters and stuff. But the people who do, they they do love them. They wear yeah. them all the time. And if you speak to anyone that's got one, they've usually had them for years because they just don't wear out. They they seem to be very. They, they have a reputation for very high quality. Yeah, and I don't know. Although, although it's not, we're not really the target audience. I think the Doc Martens brand does mean something, and it does. It does have a very good reputation in the UK. Now, I've no idea what that is outside the UK. That's part of my issue with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it will be one that we look forward to following for the next few years. Yes. Shall we move on to Shell? Yes, so the UK's largest company and one of the two super majors listed on the FTSE 100, they had their fourth quarter results out last week with revenues up 46%, driven by a strong performance across all of the core businesses, with the exception of the small upstream segment where revenue fell from $9.2 billion to $8.4 billion. Pre-tax profit more than doubled from $29.8 billion to $64.8 billion, with the higher refining margins and strong trading and optimization results more than offsetting the lower volumes and a fall in the chemicals margins. Free cash flow grew 13.9% to $46 billion, and the group ended the year with net debt of $44.8 billion, down from $52.6 billion. Looking at the adjusted EBITDA from the divisions for the full year 2022, integrated gas came in at $26.6 billion from 16.9, upstream from $42.1 billion from 27.2, marketing from 5.3, or down, sorry, um, from 6, chemicals and products up to $8.6 billion from 5.6, and there was $2.5 billion from renewables and energy solutions. 
alongside the results, a dividend of 28 cents a share was announced for the fourth quarter, which is a 15% increase on the third quarter dividend. And $18.4 billion has been spent on share buybacks over the last year, with a further $4 billion planned over the, next, or over the first quarter of this year. In terms of valuation, Shell has a market cap of £171 billion and trades at 6.1 times forward earnings, compared to the 10-year average of 11, and has a prospective dividend yield of 4.3%. Of course, these results were excellent, as I think we all expected. And until recently, Shell was the largest single holding in my portfolio. But the main reason for selling was all of the windfall taxes that the current government introduced and the call for further such taxes. And I didn't feel comfortable with the government and the environment in which the goalposts could effectively be moved and seize your money, seize your earnings just because you were doing well. I think that was sort of a principle that I wasn't comfortable with. And when that line had been crossed, I I didn't feel that I could hold the investment longer term. Saying that, though, I think in recent times, it has been shown that we do need reliable fossil fuels and the energy security is more critical than ever. So I think there are, I suppose, there's that structural support for it there. I'm not that keen on Shell spending a third of the capital expenditure on renewables. I'd probably rather they were more of a pure play oil and gas. But for those reasons, I didn't think it was sort of investable anymore. It's not an expensive valuation. I think all of that is most certainly baked into the price. So I probably wouldn't buy shares at the moment, but I appreciate they are doing well. What are your thoughts on uh, on Shell, Sam? I know the first time we covered it on the show, we were both very negative, but that was in, I think it was sort of October, was it sort of Q3 2020? Uh, just check the share price, it'll be whenever the bottom was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think it was it was around that time. It sounds about right. It wasn't too long after we'd started the show. So it's, it's about, about £8 pounds a share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tripled since then. They are obviously excellent results. We obviously expected excellent results. I agree with you. I, I think it's, it's difficult because they're just politically such a target that for me, they'd be untouchable. I didn't really like the industry anyway. I don't really like declining industries with the possible exception of tobacco. Um <laughs> mainly because it is addictive which does make it easier to sell but yeah i I don't i don't like how politically charged it is as a stock it's difficult because you i like i'm looking at this now and i'm thinking well like there's people that are jumping on the bandwagon at these results like i've seen it on twitter people going for them and none of these people there when we covered it at the bottom and they were losing a lot of money and also these people like a lot of people don't seem to understand how cyclical businesses work it is in the nature that you'll get abnormal profits at the top of the cycle so i was looking at these results thinking well what could they i like i was thinking looking at these results and thinking well you know like for example the dividend and the buybacks 
like news, like media love buybacks. They'll talk about all the shares they've bought back and like, you know, how they've not invested it back in the business and how, you know, all the, all the, the amount that home energy prices have gone up whilst they're buying back shares for shareholders. So it's like, well, could they have done less buybacks? Well, what would they have done with the money instead? I don't think capital investment's really viable because of the political environment that's being created. I don't I don't see why you'd want to invest that capital. The only other thing you could do is pay off the debt. Net debt's forty four point eight billion and that has come down a bit. They could have paid that off more, but then if you if you pay off the debt, you're increasing the profits because you've got less interest next time. So do you even want to do that? Because if you further you're still further increasing the profits, all right, you're not you're not boosting the er- the earnings quite as much like in the same way as you do with buybacks. But it, it politically it's still you're still painting the target on yourself. And I came to the conclusion there's nothing they can do. (laughs) Um, Until the oil (laughs) price goes down, people will just keep picking on them. But yeah, it's uh, very cheap. What is it? Six times earnings or something, but six times forward earnings. But they usually are at the top of the cycle. But for political reasons, I just wouldn't touch it. What about, say, a US super major? Would that interest you? Well, they're more expensive, aren't they? They are. They're a lot. You pay. You pay a much higher value. Well, you could argue that's why, because <laughs> you maybe feel a bit more secure. But I, I, valuation would be an issue. I don't particularly like the industry anyway. But regardless of what the business and industry was, with this kind of politic politicization of it, I mean, for example, like, I know there's an exceptional tax. There is a tax on house builders that's just for them. But I don't feel like they're really targeted in anywhere near the same level. And all right, the extra tax is annoying, but it's sort of, you can sort of put up with it. And I, I think you do get the feeling as well that we're a lot of, although that's not ideal, there are a lot of policies the government have in place that help the house builders because of the housing shortage we have. Whereas Shell and BP, they do just go around with targets on their backs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, BT. Maybe we just love an underdog on the show. (laughs) Little shell. Right, BT, yes. It it was little 18 months ago. Well, yeah, that's true, actually. (laughs) Well, that's the problem with these underdogs. (laughs) (laughs) It's become the establishment. Um, So, yeah, so BT, they have come out with a trading statement and they've reported revenue of 15.6 billion for the nine months to 31 december 2022 which is down one percent the decline was largely driven by a fall in sales from the global and enterprises divisions somewhat offset by robust consumer performance and gains from open reach the enterprise and global divisions are being merged to create bt business cost synergies are expected to contribute to the broader con- cost cutting program expected to deliver 3 billion in savings by the end of the 2025 financial year underlying cash profit rose 3% 5.9 billion as cost controls more than offset revenue declines and inflationary pressures net debt was 1.2 billion higher than at the end of march 2022 at 19.2 billion and underlying free cash flow fell from 900 million to 100 million due to an increase in capital expenditure and the timing of cash flows. I mean, that just, the free cash flow is just dwarfed by the day. It's actually incredible. <laughs> I mean, I know it's got worse, 100 million compared to 19.2 billion of debt, but even before it fell, 900 million to 19.2 billion of debt, that's still at uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable levels. The full-year outlook has been reaffirmed with underlying free cash flow expected to be heavily weighted towards the fourth quarter. And then a couple of other points, OpenReach, which is responsible for maintaining and building out the new fiber networks, hopes to reach 25 million homes by 2026. And huge spending over the first nine months means that 38% of the target's already been hit. In addition, they've got the large pension deficit, and at the latest triennial, triennial review, 
the new payment plan is going to cost hundreds of millions of pounds every year for most of the next decade. And that's on top of the existing debt. And then on top of that, you have to add the increasing interest rates. In terms of valuation, it trades at a forward PE of 6.4 and that compares to an average forward PE of 10.2. The prospective yield for the next 12 months is 6.3%. And I think that's so attractive because it's probably not sustainable with the interest rates moving in the direction they are. I don't think this is a very good business. I I don't think we've ever had much positive to say about it on the show in the times that we have covered it. I question the three billion in savings that they can deliver by 2025 as well. I'm not sure how they're going to do that. But when you look at the the amount, the the amounts just seem too high. I think when when underlying cash profits is only 5.9 billion, it's, it's a lot of savings to generate, and to do that without actually harming the business as well, I think it's quite difficult. It's it's a very unhealthy business. It's if you buy shares in this company, you do not own it. This is definitely owned by the debt holders, and I just wouldn't touch this with a ten foot barge pole. John, what are your thoughts on these results in the business? Yeah, I, I just uninvestable. There's I, I wouldn't go into it in any more detail than you have done. I think that's that would be the summary. Fair enough. <laughs> Shall we move on to Apple, a much better business? Yeah. So I mean one of the highest quality, if not the highest quality business in the world and a company which we all, I, I don't know whether we all love it. I certainly have a lot of Apple products. They had their first quarter results out with net sales down 5.5% at $117.2 billion. The decline was attributed to the supply disruption in China, currency headwinds and the more challenging macroeconomic climate iPhone sales fell 8% with declines in Mac and wearables too. Operating profit fell 13.2% to $36 billion, largely as a result of the higher R&D spend together with the lower sales. Free cash flow fell to $30.2 billion from $44 billion reported last year. And net debt stands at $50 billion, not including the $114 billion held in investments. A dividend of 23 cents a share was announced alongside the results. And Tim Cook, Apple's chief executive, commented, As we all continue to navigate through a challenging environment, we are proud to have our best lineup of products and services ever. And as always, we remain focused on the long term and leading with our values in everything that we do. During the December quarter, we achieved a major milestone and are excited to report that we now have more than 2 billion active devices as part of our growing installed base. And the CFO came in and said, we set an all-time record of $20.8 billion in our services business. And in spite of a difficult macroeconomic environment and significant supply constraint, we grew the total company revenue on a constant currency basis. We generated $34 billion in operating cash flow and returned over $25 billion to shareholders during the quarter while continuing to invest in our long-term growth plans. In terms of valuation, our Apple has a market cap of nearly $2.5 trillion and trades at 24 times forward earnings compared with a 10-year average of 17, and it currently yields about 0.7%. I thought these results were a bit disappointing and they were below the market expectations. I suppose, though, in the macroeconomic environment that we are in, 
when you're selling the highest end product, even with the strength of that brand, it's, it is incredibly difficult. So I think if you look at it in that context, still disappointing, but understandable. It is, it remains one of the highest quality, if not the highest quality business in the world. I certainly wouldn't bet against it, but I think I'd probably be nervous buying shares, particularly at the current valuation. And it's, we've said it before, but it's such a big company where where you see the growth coming from in the future. I suppose it's probably more as the CFO pointed out with the, the sort of services and more that the cloud, which I guess, you know, Amazon and a lot of these sort of big uh, American tech companies are going after. But it is still, I suppose, difficult to see. Having said that, we would have said the same when it was a, a trillion dollar market cap. So again, I, I certainly wouldn't bet against it. And I do have some, well, a decent amount of exposure with Apple because it's it having such a big market cap in the trackers. It's um, occupy occupies a decent percentage. But Sam, what what are your thoughts on these results and Apple as a whole? I think they're concerning. I think iPhone sales down 8%, despite their best efforts. And, and they have done a very good job at it too, might I add, of reducing the dependence on the iPhone sales. I think they are still pretty dependent on the iPhone sales. So a decline of 8% is concerning. I know they've given all these reasons. I, I think when you look at the valuation, it still trades at a forward P of 23.9. What really, I know it's, we call it a tech company, but really it's, I'd say it's more of a consumer to consumer products company. It's, it's, it's at the highest end. It's got the best margins, but that valuation is very, very expensive. And that valuation is priced like this is just a wobble and it's not the start of a trend. And that's fine if that is the case. But if this is the start of a trend at that valuation, it's got a long way to fall. I, I don't know whether it is or not, but even if it isn't, the valuation at that valuation like you were saying you sort of look at it with a 2.45 trillion dollar market cap and you i just think well where where does the growth come from anyway no i would have said that at one trillion (laughs) so what do i know but i think you're paying so much for it it just had this wobble and it's not really i don't feel like it's really been punished the market's giving it the benefit of the doubt and it's expecting it to turn it around in the next couple of quarters I just, I'm not sure why you'd buy it at this price because it, because it's pretty expensive. And I think, I just think the risk returns are quite off with this. I think it would need to fall quite a lot to be an attractive valuation, but absolutely fantastic business. It was interesting actually, because I was trying to buy an iPhone in November and honestly, none of the Apple stores had them in. And if I wanted to get one, it was going to be six weeks. That's saying, quite good, though, isn't it? Because that does lead, that does make it seem like what they were yeah. saying about the supply disruption. It does, it does seem to be correct, which and leans more like, towards it being a wobble. What, and then they said they didn't know exactly when they would get things in. Obviously, you can book it in, you can get it in six weeks' time. But otherwise, you'd have to just log on to the, well, go onto the Apple website and look at the local stores every morning at like 8 a.m. and see whether any of them got them in. But the thing is, there's other people that will be doing that straight away. And yeah, well, th- this is what I was going to say, Sam. So the dilemma that I had was I didn't want 
one of these iPhones that was about two grand and had a terabyte of storage on it. I just want, you know, I want something a bit smaller. But you go online and then the store would only have the terabyte in and then it would go within minutes of that. And that was sort of the environment that you were in. So I think there is some, tr- well, I, I, I don't doubt what they say in some senses with the supply chain issue. And there was a, a probably a stronger demand there. Uh, and had they not had that, it might not have led to such a big drop. But who knows? That is just anecdotal evidence. So would you be in the camp that it's probably more of a wobble than a change in trends? <laughs> I probably wouldn't put my money and direct, you know, invest directly in Apple on that basis. But it does give some credence to it, I think. Fair enough. So in that case, of the six companies we've covered this week, Airtel Africa, Entain, Doc Martins, Shell, BT and Apple, if you had to buy one, which one would it be? I would... I have Airtel. I would stick with Airtel. I think it's... It does have its problems, but I'm. I think it's got a bright future ahead of it, and I think they're definitely baked into the the valuation there. I, I would agree without sounding boring. My my second choice would probably be Doc Martins. Actually, I think that's probably it. It looks like more interest. Looks like it could be more interesting than I first thought. Anyway, but Etel Africa is just a clear favourite for me. Remains, especially, yeah, it remains a favourite. Yeah, especially that valuation. So yeah, I yeah. think that's everything in that case. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.